Three C's in a Pod, a weekly podcast from Provision Advisors. A look at the good, the bad, and the what could be better in the world of communication. Hello and welcome to Three C's in a Pod from Provision Advisors, where we give you insights and analysis on the day's hot topics and trends. As states begin their individual plans to reopen their economies across the nation, we'll discuss what this means for businesses looking to get back on their feet, and just what will attract people back into storefronts and other favorite haunts and establishments. With the professional sports season already curtailed, we'll talk about what the NFL is considering as their season schedule is announced. Also, we'll bring in Baltimore Sun reporter Pamela Wood and ask her thoughts on Governor Hogan's leadership approach throughout the COVID response. So let's get started with the show and go around the table. There's plenty to talk about out there. Uh, Chris, what stuck out to you in your rearview mirror? Bash, you mentioned in the opening about um, sports. Um, I'm particularly um, interested in how NASCAR and golf come back. Um, I, you know, I think there will be lots of fanfare surrounding basketball, around uh, football, and around baseball. Um, but you know, NASCAR, which was kind of on the backside of its own curve in terms of popularity, uh, there may be an opportunity as they are likely to be the uh, first sport back. Um, I've heard, you know, in social circles, but also seen written online that people that are not uh, traditional NASCAR fans, they're looking forward to it simply because it's, it's the first sport that's back. So there may be an opportunity for them to see a bump. Um, and then personally, I'm interested in seeing how golf comes back. There's talk of they're not going to have caddies, that the players are going to carry their own bags. Um, it'll be a lot more like what um, amateur golfers are used to. Uh, and, and again, it'll be one of those first sports back. And so I think there's a real opportunity to introduce golf to a new audience. So uh, I want to see how those two brands that are not in that upper stratosphere of professional sports, I want to see how they handle the return. I want to see how fans um, embrace that return. And then uh, again, as a fan of both those sports, I want to see the intricacies of how they uh, how they do it to balance uh, the desire to get back with um, the desire to be safe from a COVID-19 standpoint. And you wonder how much of that stuff is actually going to be permanent, like what will stick. Um, I guess I, I try not to get stuck around the whole term new normal, um, but just what sort of changes will have to stick around for the long haul. Yeah, there's so many. I mean, we've talked about it on the pod about from a communication standpoint or from a telework standpoint, they're there. And we talked about it last week with Jerry from a alcohol delivery standpoint. I mean, there are so many things that you wonder, are they going to stick around that are not necessarily terrible? I mean, you know, there's, there's no way to say there's a silver lining to 75,000 people dying and the lost, uh, you know, billions and trillions of, of revenue. But you wonder from a societal standpoint, um, you know, as, as you were saying about sports, but also across society, what will stick around and what we'll look back on 5, 10, 20 years and say, hey, I remember when that, that changed. Uh, John, over to you. The rearview mirror will be filled with uh, Governor Hogan's uh, press conference where uh, he came out and and announced sort of that next phase of Maryland's recovery. And, and I like to talk about Governor Hogan and Maryland. Um, so, you know, in short, the, the governor basically said, you can golf again in the state. You can, uh, you can recreationally boat and 
the beaches are open in Ocean City, um, but you know, the, still the uh, the order is in place to not have large groups congregating. He he emphasized, you know, foot stomps like four or five times during his presser yesterday about how the beach is open for walking, not congregating, walking. Uh, exercising on the boardwalk in Ocean City, and and the governor, you know, a fantastic leader and a shameless um, promoter of of Ocean City tourism, you know, certainly beat that drum to try to get people out there, but still being safe. So, you know, we'll talk more about it with Pam when she comes on. But the interesting thing for me is to watch this weekend how this order gets. Um, number one, enforced and, and how Marylanders react after being sheltered in place or quarantined or stay-at-home ordered or whatever buzz phrase you want to use on it. Uh, I suspect that after Friday's bad weather, the, the, the weekend, which brings, although colder temperatures, but nice weather um, in terms of clear skies, how, how crowded the, the waters of the Chesapeake Bay will be, um, you know, how crowded the golf courses will be. You know, I suspect that here in the first few days of this reprieve, so to speak, everyone will just try to do anything possible to uh, to get out and and do something different. And, and I suspect that that a very similar thing will be on the horizon in terms of restaurant openings when that will happen. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm struck by how well the governor did yesterday and in, in announcing a very good news story, but still being very um, very serious about what the impacts are. And that's the strange thing. I'll end with this, that people bang on Donald Trump a lot for going into the COVID task force press conferences and as hundreds of thousands of people are, you know, are affected and we're nearing a hundred thousand people uh, projected to die in this country. How do you still say, Hey, this is a good news story. We really did well. We succeeded. Um, he gets criticized sometimes very appropriately for for trying to say that this is great and we've done well as people are dying. Um, you know, the I think the governor of Maryland kind of showed him, you know, what that um, what that tone should be uh, yesterday. Uh, the question is whether Donald Trump will ever you know take tips from other people, particularly other politicians. I say no. Yeah, uh, John, to, uh, to that point, um, when we talk about people's reactions uh, to, the, to the reopening of, uh, of their states, um, you know, I mean, we've heard before that it takes uh, 21 days to create a habit. Um, and when you've had people uh, pent up uh, as much as, uh, as two months or more here, uh, I'm wondering just how, you know, you do have those people that are chomping at the bit you know, whether to get back on the waterways, get back out in parks and restaurants and such. Um, but I do wonder how difficult that's going to be for some people. I mean, for others, it's just sort of a blink of an eye. Hey, I want to get back out there. Um, but definitely looking at at the hesitancy on some folks to go back into restaurants, to go back um, into crowded places. Uh, that's something I'm going to, you know, definitely be keeping an eye on, um, you know, just for the for the mere fact of th there's the safety angle uh of it and then there's um just you know wanting to help out your local economy uh, yeah i mean it's like saying we're good but we're not good 
and, and how do you do it? Um, I think sociologically, you're going to find a lot of people just, you know, threat or, or sickness or whatever be damned. Um, I, I want to get my boat on the water. I want to swing the sticks. I want to be out of my house. Um, and so we were talking a little bit about it before we uh, started taping. You know, what, what does the next wave look like? And, and how much do we blame the next wave on these relaxed restrictions? And then how much do people actually take the next wave and react the way we did it first with the unknown and we're calling it the Wuhan virus and we're scared because, you know, it's the bat flu and we're all going to die. And I think now a lot of people are starting to ease on, on the fear um, of this whole thing. And, and if the next wave sees X number of cases of COVID, I, I think that the, the interesting discussion will be how many of those X cases actually come out and say they have COVID? How many get tested or how many, you know, I think a lot of them will just say, well, you know, this is the cost of doing business. I don't want to stoke the, you know, the flames of fear and, and overreaction. You know, I'll just, I'll ride it out. I'm not someone with pre-existing conditions and, and go from there. Hopefully people remain vigilant, but hard to say. Just let me segue to a little bit of something that I, that caught my attention last week. Um, or earlier this week, it, it bubbled under the surface a little bit, didn't get really get too much attention. But the fact that a uh, VP, vice president for Amazon, uh, resigned over some of the practices that, that were going on at Amazon for some recent firings, uh, critical of some workers there um, who were speaking out against Amazon and some of their practices in, with regard to workplace safety uh, throughout this coronavirus. Uh, something that got my attention, I know we've talked about on this pod about, you know, the, uh, the importance of speaking to your external audience as well as your internal audience. Um, this is, again, it's just something that, that grabbed my attention uh, because Amazon has been dealing with this for, for several months now. Um, just the, um, the poor workplace conditions uh, at some of their warehouses um, and it, and it finally got up to the level of, you know, you have a VP speaking out and, and ultimately resigning, uh, over it. So again, just got my attention, uh, about the importance of, uh, speaking out and having your internal audience involved in the, in the ongoing conversation. It'll Go be ahead. interesting to see Bash, um, because for the last several years, the, the, communication paradigm with employees was very much shaped by the idea that we had, you know, anywhere between three and 5% unemployment, right? So, I mean, you really, as a company, had to, had to communicate with them to ensure that you kept people, there were a lot of options for employees. Now, with 30% unemployment, you wonder, does the paradigm shift? Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. I just, I feel like this coronavirus obviously is going to bring about some new, um, it's just going to put the spotlight on, on you know, workplace safety. Um, you know, how are people going, are workers going to feel comfortable going into, you know, warehouse spaces uh, that they feel are, you know, not passing muster? Um, they feel like they're exposed uh, to this virus. So, so again, like in, we kind of got on this in the, um, in the previous subject, as we move forward and states reopen, uh, what are those, you know, where, how are people going to feel comfortable? What, what is it that is going to make 
folks feel comfortable walking into a restaurant or even walking into a place of employ, you know, where people are working, you know, close with one another or uh, dealing with packages like you would at Amazon that would possibly be contaminated. So again, just something that, that got my attention. Well, it makes me wonder whether companies should now look at within their HR departments uh, and, and the importance or the stress being on communication here, should companies be looking at have like, you know, almost like an occupational health and safety advisor? I know that that type of thing exists, you know, on the carrier, it's the safety officer. And if companies are going to need to communicate better about processes they have in place, the safety measures they have in place in order to make uh, workers feel comfortable coming back in there. Um, so do you create a new position that's specific to cleanliness, COVID, post-COVID world advisor? Uh, I don't know what it's called, but I, I think it's necessary. I think you hit it right there. And when you said about uh, the emphasis and then I would say the creativity effort that they put into communicating, right? I mean, think about how many factories or warehouses we've toured where, you, you know, the OSHA guidance is just kind of tacked up on board or it's at the bottom of their version of the plan of the day. I think now the employee base is going to be interested in that a lot more. And so it's now on the company. It's their responsibility to figure a way to, you know, kind of bring that information up above the fold, if you will, and communicate it in a way that um, shows that the company values it and that captures the interest of the employees. It used to be that every single time someone said, hey, I've got something going on or I'm not feeling great, can I quote unquote telework? And telework always got this snicker from people, you know, or maybe that's just something that I always perceived. Um, that, yeah, you're teleworking, you know, have fun, you know, air quoting, telework, um, have fun on the golf course today. Um, you know, that, obviously, the last six to eight weeks have, have changed the stigma in and around telework a great deal. Um, so how, how do you communicate, you know, the, the obvious support of that? Um, but do you really, as a company, support it? Um, you know, I think in the past, Perhaps they didn't, uh, but they were forced to because it was a line item written into like an HR agreement. But now, um, obviously, it's been proven that it can work. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, maybe it's a more effective way of doing business. Uh, so what's the long term change to you know, the, the company dynamics? You know, the, I, I, I want to say that I posted something on our Twitter account earlier in the week on this or maybe over the weekend that you know, gone are going to be the days of kibitzing by the water cooler and, and uh, you know, the, the gossip in and around the, you know, the staff meetings or in the cubicles, that dynamic's out the window and gone. Um, you know, the, the, new, the new reality is kind of what the three of us are doing right now. Well, emphasis on internal communications moving forward. Folks, we're going to take a break. Stick with us. You're listening to Three C's in a Pod. Provision Advisors, we prepare your team for the what-ifs you never thought you'd encounter. Let us help solve your toughest communication challenges and leave your team stronger and more capable for the opportunities that lie ahead. And we're back. You're listening to Three Season a Pod. We have a special guest with us today on the show, 
She covers Maryland politics from the Pulitzer Prize winning Baltimore Suns State House Bureau in Annapolis, a native of Howard County, and University of Maryland's own Pamela Wood. Thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Outstanding, outstanding. Uh, Pam, right out of the gate, let me ask you uh, a quick perception question. Uh, Just how you see Marylanders writ large, uh, how they've handled the pandemic thus far with regard to following what's coming from leadership? It's quite a range, I think, of how Marylanders are reacting. I I mean, by and large, it does seem that most people are complying with the stay-at-home order, the non-essential businesses. Um, You know, when you drive around, you see empty parking lots. in a lot of shopping centers, but I think uh, where we are now, it's starting to slip a bit. Uh, I see non-essential retail businesses doing curbside uh, sales, which they aren't supposed to do. You see people sort of agitating for more, families starting to visit each other, that mixing of households we're not really supposed to be doing. Uh, So I think it remains to be seen how much longer uh, people are gonna be compliant. That's interesting that you bring that up because I was going to ask like what are the potential pitfalls that you foresee in these coming days and weeks with you know a a slow reopening right so as we're recording now starting today the governor has allowed more expanded outdoor recreation so golf boating horseback riding tennis I'd gotten lots of questions about tennis early on I had no idea how many people were into tennis and also soon we're going to see Ocean City's uh, beaches and boardwalk reopen. And uh, I asked the governor during a press conference if he was concerned that these activities would draw crowds that would be a public health concern. And he did acknowledge that was a concern, uh, but you know, he trusted people to behave. But uh, I- I'm, not so, I'm not so sure. I- I'm hoping it's not a problem, but uh, time will tell. Yeah, I was, I was commenting in the opening segment, Pam, about the fine line Governor Hogan walked yesterday uh, in and around the issue of Ocean City that, you know, we've, we've all seen Governor Hogan be a a shameless proponent of, of the tourism of Ocean City, the uh, delaying of, of public schools starting until after Labor Day to, to squeeze that one last Ocean City tourism weekend out of people. And, and then yesterday in a very measured way, trying to say, yes, the, the beaches and the boardwalk will open, but I, I thought it very interesting how he said, well, it's for walking and exercise. Um, you know, not, I, I think he's, he's looking at the photos of Florida beaches and things like that and saying, I'm, I'm still very serious about, you know, the, the congregation uh, warnings. Um, so please observe that. But you know, yeah, please go, go down to ocean city and, and uh, help the economy there. So he, I, I think, as as I pan out to a wider, a wider lens here, that's kind of been the mark of of all of his press conferences. That very measured uh, response, which stands in in stark contrast to to other to other leaders and how they do it. And and I think he's setting a very good example for the rest of the governors and his, uh, you know, his position as the as kind of the leader of the nation's governors. How have you observed? Well, walking the line is really what Governor Hogan does in a lot of things. If you look at his tenure as governor, he's a Republican. He is in a you know Democratic majority state. The General Assembly is controlled by Democrats who have super majorities in both chambers. So he has to walk the line of um, you know promoting his 
Republican or conservative agenda, but not, uh, you know, he has to work with Democrats to like, maybe if he wants to try and get anything passed and he can't, uh, he just can't even try on some of the more divisive things that he would just totally get burned by. Um, likewise, his relationship with the Trump administration, you know, that's a fellow Republican whom Governor Hogan did not vote for. He has no love for President Trump. Uh, but when you see him being critical, he is, it goes right up to the line, but doesn't go over and doesn't blast President Trump. Uh, he will say, well, that's not true what the president said, or that's not how I would do it. Or he used to talk a lot about general dysfunction in Washington without calling out the president specifically. And he's walking that line of, you know, trying to keep his standing, I guess, in the Republican Party or now in coronavirus, trying to avoid potential retribution from the Trump administration. Um, but at the same time, you know, not like pretending like he's a, a complete fan of the president. So so walking the line is is what uh, Governor Hogan has been doing now for, for several years. So surprise, he's doing it again here with coronavirus, trying to address some concerns, maybe placate his his base, really, that's agitating for reopening, but at the same time balancing public health needs. Yeah, so I'll ask you to sort of put on your prognosticator hat. You know, the the oh, governor gosh. has obviously been one of the more popular voices nationally, you know, so, you know, I can't go a day without seeing a tweet from Mike Ricci about um, the governor appearing on CNN State of the Union or Face the Nation. Uh, he he is definitely becoming uh, a national face and, and a household name, much more so than he was back before coronavirus and the rumors were rampant about him possibly challenging Trump in the Republican presidential primary. So now as he has reached this level of popularity, you know, or at least high profile coverage along with Cuomo and Gretchen Whitmer and other governors, uh, you know, who have stepped out into the spotlight, where do you see a term-limited Maryland governor who's got wild popularity, is extremely skilled in, in walking that line, as you say, where do you see him going? And I know that the governor and his team would say, I'm not going anywhere but fixing coronavirus and trying to save as many Marylanders from, uh, you know, from suffering the adverse health effects as possible. I'm not talking about anything like that, but somewhere down the line, his leadership and his communication, you know, can be shared with a larger audience. So do you see that as a challenge to Van Hollen's Senate seat down the road? Does he just slip out of public life and, and kind of see where it goes after this? What, what, where would you see Governor Hogan going post-term? Well, you mentioned that he's wildly popular, and that's true in Maryland. Uh, Governor Hogan's approval ratings are in the 60s and 70s in every poll that's conducted, every independent poll. However, I'm not sure if that popularity translates nationwide. Now, the country has seen a large dose of Governor Hogan uh, in these last weeks on those endless TV news appearances. Um, I, I've had to learn what the actual channels are because I don't watch cable news and now I have to watch it all the time. Uh, but um, Larry Hogan's band, brand of Republican is not what is leading the national party. It's the, the Trump crowd is, is really in charge and that's who has the influence. And I, I think this is what Governor Hogan evaluated when he was being approached last year by the never Trumpers to, to be an alternative to President Trump is that 
Uh, I'm not sure he could carry a, a, a nomination that he's perhaps uh, too moderate, too pragmatic. He's not a, um, you know, super right wing Republican. He's not, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll fight to the end on abortion issues like that. That hasn't even come up in Maryland. So I think he would fail some purity tests from uh, national Republicans and the people who have that choice. I just don't see him being popular in, in, in the very red states. And, and I think that's, that's what he thought uh, this time last year when he was, you know, being courted and ultimately turned down. So, you know, not looking for president, maybe not now, not unless the party changes in, in four more years. Um, you mentioned, John, the possibility of the U.S. Senate. That makes a lot of sense for a governor, because once, you, once you've been governor, what else do you do? Well, you run for president or Senate, pretty much. Everything else is a step down. Um, that's a possibility. He does have a national um, organization that he formed, uh, a political organization uh, that right now is just kind of um, amplifying his TV appearances, and that's about it. So we'll see where that goes. Um, it, it really remains to be seen, and the governor's kept this close to his vest. I want to shift gears a little bit uh, to journalism and talk about how coronavirus has changed the way you do your job, if at all. I mean, what changes have you seen as you continue to cover a very important beat for the sun? Well, one of the biggest changes of how I do my job is I'm, I'm doing this mostly at my house. Uh, I'm talking to you now from the guest room in the uh, Northern Anne Arundel County uh, Bureau of the Baltimore Sun, um, uh, my house, uh, which is very strange. I normally pretty much live at the state house. Um, I'm sometimes in the Sun newsroom or I'm running around following candidates, following elected officials, going to meetings, um, sitting through interminable meetings. You all have been at many of those meetings with me. Uh, and now I'm, I'm at this little desk in my little guest room, uh, by and large. Um, a lot of meetings are being done uh, over Zoom and broadcast on YouTube. So that's how I watch the Board of Public Works. Uh, today there are some House and Senate uh, oversight hearings happening, briefings happening, uh, that I will be watching on my computer screen. Um, I'm watching the governor on TV all the time and, and writing up his appearances. The, and then I'm on the phone a lot, which journalists are on the phone anyway a lot, but a lot of time on the phone. And then I'm only going out once, twice a week. Um, I go out for Hogan press conferences and I went out on the special election for the seventh congressional district the day that there was in-person voting. I went to that and that's it. I have not covered anything physically in person uh, besides those few things, which is very strange. Do you feel like you've missed um, that interaction um, or have you been able to take advantage of uh, the technology and um, the changes that the state and county organizations that you cover have put into place? I for sure uh, miss the in-person. Uh, one of the things that journalists do is sometimes you get more out of a meeting, not from what the people, you know, sitting at the speaker's table say or what's said in the meeting. It's uh, grabbing people afterwards or beforehand and asking them follow-up questions or people will come over to our little press table pass me notes or whisper things and, you know, give me tips and um, being in the room matters. I mean, it's, it's great that so many of these things are now being broadcast. So the, the public at large has more access in a way um, because most people can't 
drive down to Annapolis or Baltimore for a meeting. Um, I joke that I go to meetings, so you don't have to. Um, I'm the representative of the public, but now the public can log on, which is fantastic for transparency, but you definitely lose something uh, with the technology. And frankly, there's glitches that are frustrating that everybody in, in every line of work is dealing with. Um, you know, the Board of Public Works meeting went offline the other day because there was um, a power flicker and it went out for a couple minutes and then it came back on. Um, and so that's that's a little frustrating. I have, I have one more bastion I'll throw back to you. I'm, sure, no problem. I'm sorry. Um, Pam, it, given that, um, what advice would you give to um, communicators? Um, that's kind of the, the audience that we're after on this podcast. How, how can they still provide that needed context or what would have been the, the passing of notes or the um, in the hallway conversations before or after meetings? What's the best way for them to continue to still provide that context to reporters in this new environment? I think all of the the tried and true um, ways of communicating still work. All the other ones, you know, phone calls, text messages, emails. Obviously, with a relevant and personal pitch, um, it's it's got to be trickier for PR pros to like cut through the noise because I'm telling you, I am inundated with irrelevant pitches uh, <laughs> like come on people look at what I'm covering like I don't care that you're like gummy bear factory in California now offers curbside pickup like I you know it's not relevant to me as a reporter covering the state government's response to coronavirus um, so uh, you have to be really effective and direct in your your pitches or your you know questions to reporters. Um, but yeah, you just have to try the the other ways. You know, texting, phone calls, emails. Um, uh, texting and phone calls does seem to work better for me than emails, just because I mean I I constantly am drowning in emails. Pam, as we talk about the ins and outs uh, of, of being a reporter. Uh, you've been with the Sun now across two presidential administrations. Um, what has struck you the most uh, about the sort of the ever-changing relationship between uh, the press and our political leaders? Yeah, so journalists have never been the most uh, popular people. Um, you know, even before the ascendancy of Donald Trump as president, and we were in that category, I think, of uh, lawyers and car salespeople, which, you know, is, is not fair, because there's good people in both those professions, actually, also. Um, and then it just ramped up to a new degree with the president and his, you know, fake news, the failing New York Times, like the loser Washington Post. I mean, it, it's the, like, language he uses is is absolutely astonishing just as a citizen that he would speak that way about anybody about any profession uh let alone my profession where we're trying to do our best to give people factual information to make their own decisions about our government so it's it's very to say concerning is like not even a strong enough word for it and What's disheartening is how so many people have picked this up, this mindset about how the news is terrible and, you know, we're out to get 
I don't know, get you, get the president, get to, we have some like agenda beyond just telling people what's going on uh, is super frustrating. And the troll armies on Twitter um, are, you know, are just terrible. And, and I'm concerned that after the end of the Trump administration, whether it's after the fall election or if it's in four more years, I, I'm, I'm worried that this will continue and this will stay, that this won't abate uh, after, after this president is done. Um, it's, it's so disheartening. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's trickled all the way down. There's local people who are here in Maryland on my Facebook page spewing this crap to me on my own Facebook page. So it's not just some national thing. Here in Maryland, our neighbors think that what I do and what the Baltimore Sun does is like useless garbage. So it's pretty is, terrible. <laughs> is, is, there, is there a mantra or methodology uh, you, uh, you use in order to stay above the fray or you know, to, to stick to what's true? Yeah, I mean, I just have to keep my head down and, and do my job and know that even if these folks who are uh, critics, and we have critics with good reason, you know, but but the, the, the fake news crowd, I'm serving them too, whether they know it or not. Like, I'm providing them information that even if they don't like it, it's true and it informs the public policy discussion, the political discussions in our state. So uh, it's, you just kind of have to roll your eyes and, and move on. Now that's not to say when we get legitimate criticism, I take it to heart. If mm -hmm. there's holes in my story, if, if I didn't seek out a point of view and somebody points that out, I take that to heart and you know, I, I correct the story or I do better next time. But the baseless criticism, you just can't let it eat you alive. You just have to remember the mission. Um, to give people information they need to, to make our democracy work. So Pam, you, you mentioned, remember the mission. You, you've got to feel like you're getting squeezed on both sides though. So you have this advent of fake news uh, and, and the, the very poor relationship between the White House and the press and, and that whole dynamic. But then you have the dynamic of, you know, the, the threats to local journalism. And, and you and I have talked at length about uh, your time at the Capitol Gazette and and the value of the local paper. And and so as you're dealing with this very, very destructive dynamic that, that the Trump White House espouses, you've also got the Tribune Company uh, laying people off and, and sort of putting local newspapers in the crosshairs. And, you know, from the Baltimore Sun, Don Marcus is gone. From the Capitol Gazette, uh, Pat Ferguson is gone. Um, you know, and, and I take that very personally because, you know, these, these are people that I know and I've worked with like you and Luke Broadwater and Justin Fenton, fantastic journalists who've, who've been recognized with the highest of journalistic prizes. How do you, how do you navigate this in this, in this sphere, you know, between, between people throwing fake news at you and then right as you're looking for validation or security, you've got the Tribune company kind of closing journalists down. You know, what, how do you see that play? Yeah, so one of the ways I cope with this is that I am a proud and active member of my union, uh, the uh, Baltimore Washington uh, News Guild and our, our unit at the Baltimore Sun. Um, we have a campaign going called Save Our Sun. Uh, we've been working with some local uh, rich people and <laughs> foundations uh, who have committed to 
by the Baltimore Sun and turn us into a nonprofit organization. That is a model that would remove the, you know, financial pressures of uh, a for-profit company, Tribune Corporation, our, our parent company, is a, is a uh, publicly traded uh, company. So there's a board of directors, there's stockholders. Unfortunately, about one third of the company is owned by Alden Global Capital, which is a hedge fund. Uh, a lot of people call it a uh, vampire hedge fund. Their history with newspapers is they come in and they buy up papers, they bleed them dry, uh, you know, you know, shedding staff, sucking out all the profits they can and leaving it for dead. And that is the future of the Baltimore Sun. If something doesn't change, uh, they, Alden Global Capital is currently not allowed to buy any more stock until June. Uh, and after that, they can buy more stock. And I am certain that they want to take control of the company and do what they've done to other newspapers. And if that happens, that would be a tragedy for Baltimore and for Maryland. And so we are doing whatever we can to try and convince Tribune to sell. Uh, just get rid of us, take some money, let people who actually care about journalism and care about our city and state uh, take this over and turn it into a nonprofit. And, you know, really that's the only hope that we have. Um, and so I encourage listeners, if you're interested, uh, Google Save Our Sun. We're on Twitter and Facebook, and we have a webpage where we are um, collecting signatures that we hope to present at an upcoming shareholders meeting. We'll, uh, we'll share that link on our social media channels today, too. Uh, and when the pod comes out, we'll try to draw attention to it because that is a it's a fantastic cause. And you're not alone. The three of us as PR professionals you know, stand arm in arm with you on this um and well and how do you get your how do you get your message out how do you advocate for your clients or your legislation like who is out there talking about the issues that are relevant to your to your clients if we don't have a daily newspaper i think a lot of people don't understand how much a daily newspaper um leads the way among all media um if, if you only knew sometimes how long we have a story in the works and then, you know, we pop it in the paper and then suddenly it's all over TV and radio. And it's like, did you know we were working on this for three weeks? And, you know, it's, it's, it's rip and read, they call it. And there's, there is a lot of great original work at our radio and TV stations in town, but we just have more people, more resources and we lead the way. And, and what happens if the Baltimore sun is gone? Like it, that would be a disaster. It's hard to imagine what would happen if the Baltimore Sun was gone, except that you look to Cleveland with the Cleveland Plain Dealer, um, mm -hmm. you know, going away. You look to Norfolk where the three of us have spent time and the, the pilot is a shell of its former self in terms of its ability to cover. And so it's, I guess it's not that, that big a leap um, for people to imagine what it would be like for the sun to go away. I'll ask you this last question and, and then let you go because you've been very generous with your time. Um, is there a silver lining in any of this that maybe people are realizing that local news is important 
and that people need to prioritize and whether that's people in government that they need to rely um, that, you know, the government Twitter page or the Facebook page or their website is only going to go so far that you really do need to spend time with the Pam Woods of the world. And then on the other side, the, the readers, I mean, it's a shame that it would take a crisis that kills 75,000 people uh, before people realize that. But is there a silver lining for local journalism? I would like to think that there would be a silver lining, but I honestly don't think there is. I think uh, newspapers, the news industry has done a very poor job of explaining to people why we're important and promoting what it is that we do. I think the vast majority of people um, don't pay attention. They don't understand the threat to newspapers. They they seek confirmation bias uh, when they're on social media, and they don't understand the value of the you know, nonpartisan, doing our best to be unbiased news. And uh, only the small amount of people who are very active in their government or their community or their industry um, actually realize the, the service we provide. I hate to be so pessimistic. <laughs> I'm, I wish there was a silver lining. Uh, but even this pandemic, I don't think has uh, made people fully understand um, the value of what we do. So I'm sorry I can't give you any good news there. No problem at all. Uh, the website is saveourbaltimoresun.com. Pam, we want to thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate having you here. And uh, we hope you'll come back to the show soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Excellent. Pamela Wood, Baltimore Sun, ladies and gentlemen, stick with us. You're listening to Three Season a Pod. At Provision Advisors, we specialize in strategic communication planning, execution, and coaching for senior level leaders and communicators dedicated to achieving success. We work together with your team to achieve favorable outcomes amid contentious or controversial issues which directly impact relationships and market identity. We're back and it's time to look out on the horizon. John, what do you see in the week ahead? I'm looking forward to NFL schedule drop. I'm looking forward to the English Premier League um, dropping its plan for resuming um, the English Premier League. In, in, in Britain, obviously, there, there are not all of the sports, professional sports that America has. Really, everything revolves around uh, football uh, or soccer. So, uh, yeah, billion dollar sport with NBC Sports TV revenue included in there. Uh, I'll be interested to see how these two major sports leagues, the English Premier League and the NFL, uh, drop their plans and their schedules for the future. Um, and what details will be in there? Will they be playing with fans or without fans? What considerations did they uh, you know, did they debate over uh, in terms of coming out with this plan? You know, it's a, it's a little bit like the NFL draft. Uh, it, it, it's a way to give you a little glimpse of hope. The PGA Tour did this for us a couple of weeks ago by announcing the majors will be played much later in the summer and in the fall. Uh, so I'll be looking at how uh, these two announcements happen tonight. Personally, I'm, I'm a little bit heartbroken. Uh, the Denver Broncos, my favorite football team, were supposed to play the Atlanta Falcons in Wembley Stadium in England uh, this coming season. Uh, they scrapped all international games as part of the NFL schedule. I was seriously considering following the Broncos out there for that. Um, but it, you know, in the interim, I'll take the, uh, I'll take the schedule drops and the plan from these two leagues today, and I'll be very interested to see how they communicate it. 
uh, to their legions of fans and try to tell them that everything's fine. Uh, when we resume games, uh, you can participate, uh, you know, or watch on TV. But, you know, how they appeal to their fan base is certainly something I'll watch. All right. Chris? I've got two things. First, very quickly, if you haven't seen the commercial that the Lincoln Project put out that just savaged uh, President Trump, if you're a political junkie like we are, ch- check it out. And I thought that Chris Saliza and his CNN column um, that he regularly writes used the analogy of the lion concerning himself with the sheep. Uh, the lesson being that typically, if you are at the top of the food chain, you, you don't really pay a ton of attention to the worries of those below you in the food chain. And this commercial has clearly gotten under the skin of Donald Trump in a big way. And so I see this commercial um, on the Republican side and the ongoing terror read controversy on the Democratic side. I really want to see where these two campaigns go as coronavirus, fortunately or unfortunately, kind of fades away from the news cycle. I think you're going to see in a huge way communication ramp up on the campaign again. And whether that's continued rallies or whether it's just news coverage of these two big issues, that's what I'm going to watch is what do the campaigns look like when they come roaring back? And then secondly, just very quickly, a shameless plug. Uh, Last week, John and I launched a Navy sports podcast. It's called We Sing Second Sports, a nod to the idea that in Army-Navy competition, the team that wins sings their alma mater second. Um, and so that uh, that podcast, like Three Season a Pod, is a Provision Advisors uh, venture. It's on uh, I- iTunes, it's on iHeartRadio, it's on Google Play, and would love it if uh, sports fans, Navy fans, fans of Provision uh, would check out that podcast. Definitely good stuff. I uh, look forward to listening and uh, hearing more from you guys. So that was that was great stuff. Chris, you mentioned uh, some some big items there uh, that are on the horizon um, that you're going to continue looking at. One thing that was announced this past week that got a little bit of buzz, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what comes of it, uh, interested in hearing your thoughts, uh, former President Barack Obama announcing that he's going to be speaking virtually uh, to the class of 2020. It's going to be a televised event uh, on May 16th, uh, airing at eight o'clock, uh, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, um, and, and streaming all over the place. Uh, star-studded event where he speaks uh, to the graduates of 2020. This is something that was prompted by uh, a tweet, uh, perhaps about a month ago, uh, someone suggesting uh, that Barack Obama speak to the entire graduating class of 2020 that's missing out on their, uh, you know, on their regular commencement um, ceremonies. So uh, interested to see how this sort of shakes out. Um, you know, I, I, some people will, will, will probably, you know, obviously cheer uh, the fact that this is happening. And then I'm sure you'll get some other folks that uh, are going to poo-poo uh, the address. Um, I mean, I, I think it's a good thing, uh, but I know that um, there will be those that, that want to swing it the other direction uh, so that's something that I'm going to keep my eye on. I think it'll be very well received among young people. Um, I fear that uh, President Trump will 
take the bait on, on this uh, like he does on, on most things, sadly, instead of embracing um, a great American, instead of embracing the presidency, the role of the presidency in American culture. And, um, you know, typically former presidents go from being political figures to beloved figures in, in society. Some it takes a little bit longer, but the smart move would be for President Trump to embrace this and and to you know kind of highlight the role the presidency plays i almost can't get through that without laughing myself but um <laughs> I, I fear that this will be you know our two horizons Bashan, will will come crashing together <laughs> as this will this will come uh and be a part of uh of what i was talking about in terms of you know that igniting of the political campaign i've labeled myself and been unabashed and being a huge barack obama fan and, and missing him every day in this current dynamic. It, yeah, the, the president, the current president being unable to take the high ground here, um, instead of being something that's noteworthy, it's almost something that the American audience is callous to. And, and now they expect it. It's like the old Jerry Springer show of, of the 90s, you know, where you, you just, you know, all right, you can try to have a regular show, but pretty soon the baby mama is going to come out from backstage and and hit the dude in the face. You know, that's the car crash that we're all. Who's the baby mama? I don't know. Is Barack Obama the baby mama or is Trump the baby mama? Right, who's hitting who? My sub-references have reached epic levels here, but I really do. I think that there's a part of Donald Trump and you referenced Nick Chris that he hates the rock star status that Barack Obama enjoys, you know, seeing Barack Obama on the, on the last dance, uh, Michael Jordan, um, documentary is just fantastic. And, and every time you see him, he is so measured and presidential and even, even asking Barack Obama a, a very difficult question about why Michael Jordan didn't endorse a, uh, a Senate candidate, uh, from North Carolina back in the day at the height of Jordan's popularity um, against a total zealot and, and piece of garbage in Jesse Helms. Um, Barack Obama was so presidential in his response to that very difficult question that, hey, do you as a black man back when you were just uh, reaching uh, political involvement, uh, Barack Obama, how did you feel about Michael Jordan doing that? And and he gave a very measured response. And I wouldn't call it a non-response. I would call it something that was presidential. And, and that's what Donald Trump lacks. And every time he sees Barack Obama do that, and every time he watches him give a national commencement address, it stokes his fire. And that might be what Joe Biden needs to, you know, for the rest of the American audience to see how unbalanced he is. Well, uh, May 16th, uh, we'll see if um, uh, the Twitter sphere uh, erupts before then with, uh, with a response um, to hashtag graduate together. Before you wrap it, can sure. I do one, one more? And uh, you can tell that I'm over-caffeinated this morning. Before we wrap, I would like to wish Elizabeth Cervello, Lon Cervello, Susan Schofield, Linda Mann, and all of the moms out there a happy Mother's Day. I have always had an immense appreciation for my mom and my wife, who was a fantastic mother. But after this quarantine, that appreciation is renewed and probably doubled. No, hey man, I thank you. Thank second you so much that emotion. That. that is that's beautiful, man. Thank you. 
Um, here's to, here's to all the moms. Folks, we want to thank you for listening this week. We appreciate you joining in on the conversation. Uh, if you're looking for more information on what we've discussed here today, as your business or organization considers how to navigate communicating around this coronavirus or other issues, please feel free to reach out to us at provisionadvisors.net. And in the meantime, we want you to be safe, be mindful, and take care of yourselves. Thank you for listening to Three C's in a Pod. Have a great week.